0: How do you find the path that leads to life? How do you succeed in walking it? For six weeks now, we've been studying the path that leads to death. We Begin with the words of the wise man from Proverbs, listen my son, let your heart never turn to her ways. For her house is the highway to the grave, and her paths lead down to death. As we study these roads and their twisting and their turning, the way they promise joy and end in misery, the way they whisper of happiness and end in ruin, the way they speak of life and terminate in death, how do we find the right road. The truth is that for human frailty, it isn't enough to have a book. We also need a teacher. If we're going to find the right road, it isn't enough to have a map. We're also going to need a guide. And in ancient times, In forms of majesty and dread and splendor, God came down upon Mount Sinai where his people were gathered around, newly rescued from slavery in Egypt, wondering where they were supposed to go. And he gave them the law. And it was a lamp for their feet and a light for their path, written in splendor upon tablets of stone. But the law wasn't enough. We needed an example. And in the fullness of time, God became man. And taking on flesh, he stepped into our world. And with every word that he spoke and with every action that he performed, he showed us how to walk the path that leads to life. And the virtues which he patterned for us all throughout his life, from his humble birth in Bethlehem, through his teaching to the crowds, through the miracles which he worked, and the kindness which he showed, he instructed us, action by action, word by word, how to walk the path that leads to life because a map wasn't enough for us until God himself should come to be our guide and take us by the hand and lead us down the way. And in all that sacred life which he lived filled with so much example of virtue, there is no moment greater and no teaching more profound than that which is contained at the end of his life. And St. Augustine said this, all those centuries ago, Linium in quo fixa erat membra patientis etsiam cathedra fuit magistri docentis. It means the wood to which the limbs of the suffering one were affixed has even changed and become the chair from which the master taught. And so we want to look at the cross this evening, the cross above all, as the great model of virtue. As we study these seven paths that lead to death and talk about the ways to avoid them and to walk toward life, it's the cross where we find our most vivid lesson of what it means to walk toward heaven. And the words of St. Paul to the Philippians, which we heard in the liturgy today, are instructive for us. Have this mind among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As we enter into Holy Week this evening, I want to take everything we've discussed about the seven deadly sins and study the Master's last lesson and see what it has to teach us. The first of the deadly sins is gluttony. We said that it means reaching out for a false abundance, trying in vain to fill our stomach and perhaps through that our heart with something that can cheer us and make us happy or distract us from our sorrows. But it's a false abundance. And the true banquet is in heaven. And Christ emptied himself. That's what St. Paul said to the Philippians. There on the cross, he showed us perfectly how gluttony is to be avoided. And the one who fasted in the desert and set us an example of abstinence, the one who thirsted upon the cross, showed us what it means to hunger, not for earthly things, but for heavenly things. He called out upon that cross, I thirst. And in that moment, he showed us that by turning away from the attempt to satisfy the thirst of the body, it's possible to fulfill the thirst of the soul. What he thirsted for on the cross most profoundly was our salvation, yours and mine, and not by grasping, but by emptying himself. Did he find what he was looking for? And lust is the second of the deadly sins. And it means reaching out for a false pleasure and a false communion. It means grabbing and grasping and seeing the other as an object and a tool. But Christ upon the cross, Christ the bridegroom, shows us how lust is to be avoided. For all the scriptures tell us that the cross is a nuptial mystery. The Christ was there upon the cross as a bridegroom, there to love as a bridegroom should. Not by grasping and by taking, but by laying down his life. Not by using the other as an object, but by giving himself away. And it's there upon the cross that he shows you and I what it means to love, that he reveals to us the image of what it is to be a Christian bridegroom and to lay down one's life. It's there on the cross that he shows us the path that leads to true communion and to the wedding feast in heaven. And avarice or greed its the third of the seven deadly sins. It reaches out for a false security in the things of this world, trying to build up a big enough pile so that hopefully at last when we have enough We'll be secure. We won't have to worry about the ups and downs. And that fear which seeks that false security that avarice can offer makes us pull back from mercy. And we see our brother in need and we see the good that we can do, but we won't help and we won't do it. When greed has a hold of our heart and makes us unreasonably afraid. But on the cross, The Savior models for us perfect liberality. Aristotle talked about a virtue of liberality, a virtue of giving things away in order to help others, but then he talked about another kind of virtue, too, like liberality, but higher than it. A virtue of not just being generous in little things, but being generous in great things. He called this virtue magnificence. And no more magnificent deed has ever been done. For on the cross, he gave away everything. Stripped and exposed, having given everything away, he retched out his arms in the sign of self-giving love and poured out even his precious lifeblood to save his people, to save his enemies, to save you and to save me. And generosity so profound and a gift so complete shows us the path away from greed and the great truth that whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for the sake of the gospel will find it, and that it is in giving yourself away that you truly begin to live. And sloth, the fourth of the seven deadly sins, pulls us into a kind of spiritual sorrow. And it makes us sluggish when we have to go about the service of God because it's difficult. And it sends us into a kind of laziness and a kind of malaise. But Christ on the cross shows us perfectly how to turn away from sloth and strive toward heaven. It's in his passion, most of all, that we see his courage and his perseverance. As he picked up the wood of the cross with the human arms and carried it down the Via Dolorosa, he showed us what it means not to give up and to continue toward the goal, not to become weary or to quit before the victory is won, but to persevere until it was accomplished. And weak love, sentimental love, love that is infected with sloth that gives way when love calls for sacrifice and when love calls for suffering. But the love we see on the cross is brave. and the Lord we, and the love we see on the cross is strong, and it doesn't grow weary, and it doesn't become afraid. As St John put it. He loved his own who were in the world, even to the end. And envy looks at our neighbor and sees only a threat and has to push our neighbor down and raise ourselves up to shine into the spotlight. But in the cross, Christ willingly takes the lowest place. He says, I am among you as the one who serves, He's willing, not jealous, but willing to stoop down low to take what was the very lowest path and therefore to ascend into the highest. For the paradoxical thing is that it is precisely by stooping down low that he was raised up so high. As St. Paul said to the Philippians, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, has God highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name above every other name. And we learn from his example that if we too are going to accomplish anything great, we will also have to be willing to suffer. We'll also be, have to be willing to stoop down low. For the road to the cross didn't seem like a magnificent road or a great road when the Lord walked it. And yet, no greater thing has ever been done, not with jealousy but with a liberality vast and free. And wrath is the sixth of the deadly sins. It sends us into instant war against our neighbor because of slight insults. It steals our peace. It fills our mind. It sets us at enmity with others. It robs us of concord. But meekness, meekness is modeled perfectly in the cross of Jesus Christ. So many times during that passion he had cause for anger, and yet during the passion, anger was out of place. For that was the time not for resisting an injustice, but for enduring it. And Christ showed us there precisely how. And wrath could have flared up at any time, but it didn't. And though he made clear that he could have called on his father to send 12 legions of angels, he didn't. But patiently, meekly, he bore the things that were inflicted on him. And he did that without spite, but even prayed for his enemies. As we heard in the gospel today, as his hands received the nails, he cries out to his father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And even in doing that, even in the manner of his death, praying for his enemies and even his executioners, he set us the model of meekness and forgiveness. There's a love that's remarkable indeed, a love that wrath has not turned away, a love that reaches out even to enemies in order to make them friends. There's the love of God which reaches out to sinners, which reconciles and transforms, which repairs broken relationships and makes we who have been God's enemies into his precious sons and daughters. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That prayer was prayed for those who drove the nails into his hands, but it was prayed for every sinful soul. For you and me. And if the merciful love of God, the meek love of God, has found out us and reconciled us, we may not refuse to forgive our sisters and our brothers. And vanity, the last of the seven deadly sins, goes frantically searching everywhere we can look for some kind of praise. Eager to hear what the world will whisper in our ear, its sweet praises which are fickle and are worthless. But Christ scorned vanity in his passion, and so set us a model for how to do it. He received in that passion not praises, but jeers and insults and false accusations, And though for a moment the crowd was singing Hosanna to the Son of David, very soon they showed their fickleness and they were calling out, Crucify him, crucify him. But the crowd couldn't turn the Lord away from his purpose. And steadily, he walked the path to Calvary. And because of this, the Father has bestowed on him the name which is above every other name. And because he scorned earthly praise, he is praised forever in heaven, and his name will never be forgotten and is set above all others. And if we follow his example, and if the love of earthly praise doesn't pull our heart aside, then God will praise us too and give us a greater name than any name the world can bestow. the wood to which the limbs of the suffering one was fixed has even been changed and become the chair from which the master taught when christ summed up the law which had been given to israel on sinai the law that they had always struggled to keep the law that he had come to fulfill perfectly and to model He said this, Love one another as I have loved you. His summation of the law came with an example. It came with a great commentary. It came with his life. Love one another how? As I have loved you. So look at the cross and see the lesson written. Look at the cross and see what radiates from the center of it. For the greatest virtue that he came to model was love. Love, the queen of all the virtues. Love, the antidote to all seven of the deadly sins. It's love that's shining like a brilliant light in the center of the darkness of the passion. It's written on his thorn-crowned brow and in the nail marks in his hands. And in his pierced side. That love breathes in every breath that came from his dying body. It beats in every beat of that sacred heart. A love that went to the garden, a love that got down on its knees and washed the dust of the street from the feet of his disciples a love that went to the cross, a love that went to the tomb, a love that death could not hold, and that lives forever. That's the lesson. That's the model. Not in abstract terms, but in flesh and blood. That is the pattern which you and I are to follow. Just before I begin that talk, Father Will was talking about that examination of conscience, inviting us to look at which of these seven deadly sins afflicts us most, which one most calls for our attention, of which one do we most need to be healed, and Christ wants to heal us. Think about it for yourself for a moment. Which of the seven is it with which you struggle the most? which of the seven is the weight which keeps your heart from going as close to God as it might go? Think about that question for a minute and then look again at the cross and see the model and more than a model. For it wasn't enough for us to have a map without a guide. It wasn't enough for us to have a law without an example. But even the example is not enough. And Christ is more than an example, more than a man who lived a long time ago, whose life we can read and admire and try to imitate. Christ is alive now. He is present here. He comes every day to this holy altar in his body and his blood. He waits in the confessional, to forgive sins more than an example. His love will come inside you. It will transform you. So open up your heart to him. And tell what St. Paul said of himself is true of each and every one of us. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Not I, but Christ lives in me. More than a model and an example of virtue, the cross of the Savior is a fire of grace and a fountain of mercy and an instrument of salvation. And if you are washed in that blood, it will cleanse you and heal you and make you strong and break your chains and turn your heart toward heaven and set it on fire with love. This Holy Week, Go to the cross and open your heart. Let him live in you. Let him love in you. For he wants to, my brothers and sisters. And the words with which we began this holy season of Lent, as they echo through the liturgy of Ash Wednesday. Might fittingly come to our mind again as we conclude this holy season. For these words are written in his heart Behold, now is a very acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation.